0: I forgot my ukulele. Hold on, <laughs> go chink, get it.
1: Chink, 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 chink. I was uh, gonna
0: say, you know, if we had both read this book, then we could have started with some kind of like double rainbow goof. But oh. it was only only you read it, <laughs> so it's more of like a single rainbow. Oh, a single rainbow, single rainbow. Remember that one?
1: I remember that hit YouTube video? Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And this week, we are talking about Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow. It's Wait. been a long time coming. Specifically, my time reading this book has been a long time
0: coming. It's been a long time since we said we would read the book, and then it took a long time to read the book.
1: Also. Now, I, so this book was recommended to us by two illustrious Patreon donors, Dan and Sean. I have also... Mm-hmm. Um, pulled some quotes from emails we've gotten over the years about uh, Thomas Pynchon because I think Oh he's boy, I com- bet a
0: lot of people told us to read this guy.
1: He's come up a bunch and he's also come up as we occasionally have just said over the last five years we're never going to do that. <laughs> I think I just knew. Um, so Glenn wrote us uh, an email a while ago and, and one of the quotes about Gravity's Rainbow was that it was one of the most important works of fiction in the 20th century so we better sure. read it. Other people have just recommended Inherent Vice, or if you have to do one, make it Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, and we got one from Paul, which I always remember as a meaner email than it was. It's a very nice email, because he does close with keep up the good work. But it just starts, y'all need to man up and read some Pynchon. Which I don't
0: love that turn of phrase. You know, man up. But, but he,
1: uh, he is compliment you know, he goes on to compliment the show, so I don't think he's trying to be mean-spirited. But I, I do think that Paul was just like, come on now, pull up your suspenders and uh, tie on your britches and read a big like book. I just think, like,
0: he was probably refer like, as a new episode of the show comes out, the probability that we will have read any given book approaches one... Correct. And I think he just figured that it was like, Pynchon's number is up. Is what and I said,
1: his basically. number was up. Pynchon's number was up. So um, we are going to talk about this work of, um, this classic work of postmodern American fiction. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell Andrew all about it. Andrew, you have not read this book, correct? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no. No. Um, it is nine hundred pages long in the edition that I have, so it's, I. It's a big boy. I will not be talking about everything that happens in this book. I just can't. There's not Hi. coward. <laughs> Debate me, um, yeah. but before we get into the book as best as we can, Andrew, can you tell me a little about a little bit about our boy Tom here, Tommy Boy?
0: You know, I can tell you a little about him, but I can't tell you probably as much as I would like because one of the things about him is that he's extremely reclusive and gives <laughs> sure. pretty much zero press interviews. Uh-huh. Um, almost all the pictures of him that exist are from his high school days. Oh, sure. And no one knows where he lives. So it's not even like Bill Watterson where like you could go to the local bookstore in whatever Ohio town that he lived near and sometimes find autographed copies of the books on the shelves. Did like, s- He just, nobody knows where Thomas Pynchon is.
1: Did you see the quote where he said, my belief is that recluse is a, wor- is a code word generated by journalists, meaning, quote, doesn't like to talk to reporters. <laughs>
0: I mean, that's fair, though. <laughs> I, I guess I'm not sure what the interview, like the book release circuit like the publicity circuit would have been like back in the 60s when he was first getting started but i feel like these days if you put out a book like kind of going out and saying hey everybody would you like to buy my book is kind of an expected part of the day yeah
1: it sounds like he he hit he hit it big you know this one was published in what 73 Yes. Um, so he hit it big it's in the seventies, yeah. and then was very popular, you know, in the eighties and nineties. He's published big books since, so he's in that kind of generation of writers that probably don't need to do a lot of marketing anymore, right? Like I don't guess. Get, yeah. Um, what else um, do you know what What were you able to find out about him?
0: So I know that he was born in nineteen thirty seven. I know that he's a novelist, <laughs> and a MacArthur <laughs> fellow,
1: um, and
0: his books are known for being. Sort of difficult and obtuse, but they also touch on a lot of different genres and themes and they represent a sort of melding of high and low culture that mm. that appeals to people. Okay. Um, this does not always sound like my favorite thing to read, so I'm kind no. of excited <laughs> that you've got a gotta gotta turn up on the the Heck complicated yeah. white man book chopping yeah. block for once. Uh-huh. Um, there's also, so back to his reclusiveness for a second, one of his only like recorded appearances for years and years in like the 15th season of The Simpsons, he voiced himself where he played a character with, a, he played Thomas Pynchon, but it was just like a Simpsons character with a paper bag over his head <laughs> with a question mark on it. Okay. And he's got like a big neon sign in front of his house that says Thomas Pynchon's house, come on in. <laughs> And he did that show because apparently his son was a big fan. And then also Josh Brolin in September of 2014 told the New York Times that Pynchon has a cameo in the Inherent Vice film. But to this day, I don't think anybody has accurately identified him. And I'm not sure that he actually did it or not.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a thing I saw. There have been like articles attributed to him that people don't know if they're him. There's like... There were actually a bunch of uh, theories that he was wrapped up in, like the Waco stuff in the early '90s. Hmm. Be- again, because pe- because he's not out there doing press tours, uh, and everyone it just,
0: it just means he's Bigfoot. Like, yeah. why, why are <laughs> I we think, I think coming so. up with all these theories
1: about him? I don't. Well, I don't think that uh, yeah, it's sort of a little bit more like anonymous Forest Gumpy than like Big Bigfoot doesn't get like roped into news stories. Like I mean, like unless they was one of the specifically about breaking, Bigfoot, God. yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, uh, sure. But we do, yeah, we do know he was a writer from a relatively young age. He contributed some fiction to his school newspaper, and his first published story was um, was published in um, in a cor- in the Cornell Writer in 1959. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was at he graduated from high school at the age of sixteen. And then did two years at Cornell, then did a two-ish year stint in the Navy, and then came back and did it and finished out at Cornell. Um and his first novel, uh, V was published in 1963. And um it and The Crying of Lot 49 were both like written while he was an employee at Boeing, the um the airplane the military, company. Yeah, the the contractor at the airplane company. Um kind of weird how many ties he has, I guess, to the military industrial complex like I I wouldn't of of like prominent novelists who came into their own in like the 60s and 70s it doesn't always feel like a thing that they would necessarily have in common like it feels more like a greatest generation touchstone we'll
1: talk about that actually because I when I saw that and when I was reading that some of the characters in this book um appear in V um I'm not sure if any of them appear in crying Lot 49 um, there's some overlap within, There's, I don't know if you want to call it a, a cinematic universe or not, but <laughs> um, it seems like that time at Boeing and what he is responding to coming out of the 60s uh, is very critical of the military-industrial complex. Sure. Um, and it's interesting that he had a front row seat for it. Um so yeah, his
0: his first novel like I said published in 63 and then The Crying of Lot 49 was out in 66. That was his first one that I think got any critical attention, like like big critical attention and then Gravity's Rainbow came out in 73 and his, it was his biggest thing. Um sort of infamously, he was um unanimously recommended for the the Pulitzer Prize in fiction by the three pan, you know, three member jury, but the wider like Pulitzer committee i guess said that you know, they they refused to give him the award basically let me find <laughs> the um this is from a new york times story published may 8th 1974 pulitzer jurors dismayed on pension and um they all recommended unanimously unanimously recommended gravity's rainbow for the award and then in second place um two of them Two of them had liked John Cheever's A World of Apples, and then Gore Vidal's Burr was, was preferred by one of the others. But they ended up just not awarding the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction this year. Um, yes. The um, other members of the, of the board, it was 14 people, they described the Pinchon novel during their private debate as unreadable, turgid, overwritten, and in parts obscene. One member editor said he had tried hard but had only gotten a third of the way through the 760-page book. That must have been the hardcover or some other edition yes, than the one you yes. read. Um so yeah, like people some people really liked it. Um, some people really didn't like it. It <laughs> went on to win um I think the national, book, the national award. book award. Yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, it's just it's weird that everybody who was in charge of recommending fiction that year loved it but the wider committee was like nope yep which i didn't know they could like do like why why ask the
1: jury i think there was a reason why not
0: give it to you didn't give it to anybody (laughs) like what's your
1: problem (laughs) i think there was a recent dust up where they didn't award it but that had more to do with like who was nominated and and some scandal stuff but yeah it's that the pulitzer sometimes the pulitzer's just don't give an award they're just like it wasn't good enough this year it's that's rare gonna be that it, really disappointing for yeah. anybody
0: who came out with a thing like like you've gotta maybe if you write a novel for for what it's gonna be a weak year you're like you know i i'm gonna i have a better chance this year
1: yeah that happens in sports all the time we're like oh well the best team got a bunch of injuries so the second best team won yeah you don't it's their
0: time to shine but the pulitzer is like no we have standards <laughs> you're not grading on a curve i'm sorry
1: uh, well, let's take a quick break, Andrew, and then I'll tell you as much about this ginormous book that I can. Let's go,
0: Craig. I love learning so much. That's part of why I do this podcast with you. Is that I love
1: learning a lot. But you can't learn everything that you need to know in this podcast no, with me,
0: especially not on the weeks where I don't read the book. <laughs>
1: So help me. Oh, so help you. Sure. So <laughs> yes. our one of our sponsors or our sponsor this week is The Great Courses Plus. I think that you, Andrew, can learn a lot by watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. Um, it's a great way you to just, so? Yeah. It's a great way to discover new interests, pick up new hobbies. Um, and they've got fascinating insight from leading professors and experts. And they've got hmm. it in all sorts of categories. Like it doesn't just have to be books. It could be like history or science, um, art and music. And they've got an app, Andrew, so you can watch or listen anywhere, anytime.
0: Dang, nice.
1: I checked out uh, a course that we would like to recommend to listeners of Overdue, The Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction.
0: Craig, tell me one of the secrets. The
1: One of the secrets is we are not sure who the first detective writer was Uh but maybe it's Voltaire it's a mystery (laughs) (laughs) that's the ultimate mystery yeah it's a it's a cool course that it's got like 36 lectures that are all like half an hour long that dive into different topics um and explore like stuff like Agatha Christie and Edgar Allan Poe I was impressed right off the bat uh we think you're going to enjoy the great courses plus as much as I certainly have And for a limited time only, our uh, listeners will get this special offer, a full month of unlimited access to the entire Great Great Courses Plus library for free. But to start your free month, you must sign up through this URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash overdue. So what do I need you to do, Andrew?
0: You need me to sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash overdue. Remember, that is thegreatcoursesplus.com, no spaces, no nothing, slash overdue. And, yeah, you'll get a full month of, of unlimited access to the library for free. You can watch anywhere with the app. Yeah. And you can learn some of the secrets of mystery and suspense fiction.
1: Learn those secrets. Secrets. Okay, Andrew, here we go. Tell me about
0: this rainbow and gravity and what gravity has to do with rainbows.
1: So... The is that a good introductory question? Yeah. So the main thrust of the book is rockets. Nice. Nice. Good word good word play. And it is about it is set in the waning years of World War II. Um starts in 1944. We hop around a little bit in time based on some backstories and stuff. Um we go through uh the war does end in Europe. Um during over the course of the book and we have characters who are hunting for this like rocket that was launched by the German army Uh, and so gravity's rainbow is specifically referencing like the parabola of a rocket launch neato Um, and that has a lot of thematic resonances that I think think i understand mm-hmm.
0: um be confident like say you absolutely understand them i
1: fully understand everything that happened in this book and everything Good. i'm about to say today is canon
0: <laughs> look at you
1: that's it i solved the book. It out
0: um also tell me why you want me to talk about v2 rockets which you told me to research ahead of time
1: sure i asked you to tell me about v2 rockets because the opening of the book we are in london We are with some folks uh, who work in various, like, organizations slash operations called Octung and Pisces. Now, are these, Um,
0: like, government operations, like, related to the war effort? Yes,
1: yes. Um, And some of them work at a place called the White Visitation, which is a former insane asylum that has been repurposed for, like, some sort of psychic research, as well as a bunch of Pavlovian experiments... (laughs) it's kind of a catch all for a bunch of like odd people who may or may not have psychic abilities, but may not may just be hallucinating. Okay. Um, and they are, you know, constantly besieged by rocket launches from mainland Europe. And they are, they have noticed that the rockets, these, uh, they pertain to, or they, they, land in a pattern that literally maps to a map on this one guy's office wall where he's keeping track of all the ladies that he's slept with nice this guy's name is tyrone slothrop and <laughs> yeah <laughs> slothrop yeah Sloth rub. There's a lot of like. Is um, Pinchin
0: good at names? Like sometimes pe- <laughs> writers are really good at names.
1: It's it goes back and forth. Um, the other guy we meet early on is I think his name is Jeffrey Pirate Prentice. Okay. Um,
0: is that hyphenated? Is it like? No,
1: Pirate is a his nickname. His dad was a pirate and the Prentice mom was is Prentice. just his last name. Mm. Um, it might be an anagram for a, a word that has to do with being damned. peterin, I think. Anyway, <laughs> words and meanings. Um, How do they work? I don't know. So the folks at the White Visitation have been studying Slothrop for some time because they're trying to figure out why he is able to like predict or cause these rocket launches. Okay. So... Tell me what you learned about rockets. Here's
0: what I know about the V two rocket: is it is the first long range guided ballistic missile. It was developed by Germany during World War two so that they could more easily strike at the Allies without having to, you know, actually send bombers and planes sure, and, and sure. people. Um, but Um, When the war ended, the technology was captured by like U.S. soldiers and then engineers who had worked on the project were they all relocated to the U.S. and the U.K. and the USSR. So from here you get kind of twin trajectories, for, for lack of a better word, around this rocket. On the one hand, its technology is the foundation for other um, ballistic missiles including the pgm 11 redstone which is uh, it was developed in the uh, in the late 50s early 60s and it was the first missile ever to carry a live nuclear warhead neat um, but on the other hand its technology was including like liquid fuel and and, and other stuff was used in the space program okay so um it, it also was sort of the foundation for um, the the space race and for all of the technologies that were invented as a, as like a side effect of that so yeah it's it can blow up a lot of stuff and it's responsible for that but also it can launch really far and it can kind of get people into space and it and it opens up new frontiers in exploration and and in technology in in interesting ways and that's that's just that's just good old fashioned human ingenuity. There, like, there's nothing, <laughs> there's no good technology that we can't figure out how to make kill people, and there's nothing we make for killing people that we can't, you know, have a little fun with on the side.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that is actually a huge crux of the book. Um, Was that the thing I said? The thing you just said. So when we when we mentioned earlier, uh, Pynchon's ties to working at Boeing and, and stuff like that. There, the A huge theme of the book is our relationship to new technology and what we do with it and where it comes from. Um, and I read in a couple reviews that I was using to try and get my bearings on this thing, um, like references to the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 60s, mm-hmm. and that Pynchon was likely responding... Uh, f- like with just great fear to where we were headed and and what we were doing. Um, And the multiple characters throughout the book are are talking about like, okay, well, we have to just pursue technology and advances in technology because they're just going to happen as if technology is just like this thing that walks around and like will happen anyway, whether or not we participate. Um, And the counter argument to that is like, Every new technology can be traced to one person's desire to like get get it over on someone else. Um, like I want to kill that guy, so I'm going to make a better gun or whatever. Yeah, it might be.
0: like that. That's that's rough, and that that comes with every arms race, and also like a metaphorical arms race. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Like you you can't. It, it is hard to put the brakes on that kind of stuff because. You just don't want somebody to seal a march on you or get it get one over on you while you are like naively trying to I don't know, pursue peace or to make things less dangerous or to make things more like civil.
1: Yes, for I sure. Yes,
0: depending on the what kind of conflict you're talking about.
1: Um and the other like the third kind of just a third way into that conversation also is just capitalist uh like incentive to participate in a war machine. Um, we don't, throughout the course of this book, there are only a couple real like explicit references to the Holocaust. It's very, it's very, doesn't actually talk about that very much. Um, and there's only some like secondhand knowledge of actually how the war is going. Most of the people mm-hmm. that were, that were meeting are on the fringes. They are doing weird spy work. They're building rockets. They're launching rockets maybe, but they're not like on the front lines. They're not the people at the top of any of the like ladders of authority. And so later in the book, when the war is over and central Europe, specifically Germany is uh, referred to as the zone and people are just kind of like living in this sort of lawless land uh, for a period of time they are hearing that the allied powers are you know are coming together to sort out the world um, and here's a quote there are rumors of a war crimes tribunal underway in Nuremberg uh, no one Slothrop has listened to is clear who's trying whom for what um, and then that kind of goes off into a tangent about a couple of other tangents in the book about various corporations American corporations that uh, were working with german you know arms dealers and just like the way that technology is not just like we're discovering a thing for discovery's sake anymore we are now building a thing so that we can make money off of it and then that becomes its own engine
0: yeah that, that's kind of a thread i think in some of Pynchon's other work just based on the research i did so when he was in school he apparently with a classmate wrote this science fiction musical called Minstrel <laughs> Island that was about a d- quote dystopian future in which IBM rules the world which in, in you know back back then IBM was what's the thing know, the thing like yeah. I, I, IBM's supremacy in technology didn't start to to wane until like the 80s and 90s sure when sure. people started making clones of its technology and kind of undercutting (laughs) it. But, um, but yeah, IBM is one of the companies that I think, you know, supplied a lot of the technology that, that the Germans used for various things. And like, and and yeah, so, so that's uh yeah. (laughs) uh,
1: And, and so the other part of new technology that happens at the book, and then we'll get a little bit back to like literally what happens, um, a couple, like they reference um, chemistry and like non organic, non organic chemistry a lot, especially as they get to making this rocket work um, and some of the plastics that are involved and and things like that. Plastics and this idea that you can work, you can take what nature has given you. And then, like, literally make a thing that didn't exist before with it. And not, not just in a, like, oh, I cut down a tree and, like, made a chair out of the wood. But, like, I broke apart a molecule and then reformed it into this thing that would never occur in nature on its own. Right. Um, and, like, the book shows you characters who are very excited about that and, like, can't resist that and is showing you perhaps the cost of pursuing that. Um this all sounds very reasonable, right? I've been talking about a book that's just kind of <laughs> like, oh, there's so there's some dudes who go after a rocket and like stuff happens. Yeah, it's like happens. it's like a
0: book where there are some characters and some events happen and and you'd sort of read this book to find out how the events progress until you get to the end of of the book and then you Look back on what you read and sort of think about the themes and and uh, then you come and talk about it with your good friend, Andrew.
1: Well, but the, th- the part where you said like things happen and you thought you think about what you read <laughs> and understood, um, that is not what Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow is interested <laughs> in. Um, hmm. It is one of the more obtuse books that I've obtuse, abstruse
0: I think obtuse is fine. I think obtuse yeah. is is one of the words that the Pulitzer people <laughs> use to describe it. So let's it just go just with that. Just actively
1: with um, doesn't want me to know what's happening. I found to be okay, the so
0: case. You you kind of sort of told me something like that. Like as we were. Usually, like, earlier in the in the day before we record, whoever didn't read the book will check in and be like, okay, when I do my research later tonight, like, is there anything it would be helpful for me to hit? And as we were talking about this, like, I, I asked how it compared to Infinite Just, which is another super dense, super long book that we read and talked about, and we needed a lot of time, and it took a long time, and... But, but I think we eventually got to the point of the thing and I found your response sort of enlightening, which was, can you just tell me what that was?
1: What that, oh, that I, I don't like this book as much because I don't think it has as much heart as Wallace's work. Um, Is that like a
0: good? Is that a good jumping off? That's a great jumping off to talk about the book. Like, like what are the what are the characters like? What kind of stuff are you?
1: Almost everyone everyone in this book is motivated by fear and boning. Um, (laughs) Same, not in Las Vegas. Um, Hard same. (laughs) So the the primary. Uh, I've seen this written in some reviews, like the primary emotion of the book is like paranoia and fear. So all of these people working in London are, are working out of a fear that they could be destroyed uh, or that the war is going to get them. So uh, we have, as I've mentioned, we have Tyrone Slothrop who is the unlikeliest protagonist of a book I've ever encountered. Why Um, do you say that? Because it starts out, you meet, you spend some pages with Pirate Prentice. You meet um, the Pavlovian scientist pointsman. You meet the stats guy, Roger Mexico. Um, Roger Mexico.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's a fake name that you give when you (laughs) check into a hotel and you don't want anybody (laughs) to know you're there.
1: You're meeting all these people who work at the white visitation and it, you know that Slothrop is a character that exists in the world, um, but it's mostly this whole first section of the book is people following him and talking about him and trying to understand him. And then the latter 75% of the book, uh, most new things that happen are driven by Slothrop running around Central Europe. That was a big surprise to me. Um, And he's
0: so. From what I read, like him doing that is ostensibly about tracking down this one particular rocket, but that seems almost sort of incidental to all the other stuff that Pynchon's trying to do.
1: Correct, mundo. (laughs) But let's let's really dive down onto some of the absurdity of Slothrop and and uh,
0: beyond the fact that his name is (laughs) Slothrop, which I still (laughs) just cannot with. Uh,
1: I think the other thing that like this book. Is also going for a level of absurdist humor that I don't always truck with, or that I can find um, hard to to get on.
0: Sure, on a and, scale from like Mel Brooks to Family Guy, like what kind of absurdism? It, are um, we it actually about? feels more
1: British than either of those. So oh, like,
0: okay, kind of a Monty Python sort yeah, of. Yeah,
1: even though Pynchon himself is is American, there's lots of like goofy songs that I, that I'll talk about a little bit later that feel very much like a like an old bbc comedy but um so slothrop is potentially causing these missiles to rain down on london in a pattern every time um everywhere he's had sex within two to ten days a rocket hits there and they don't know a lot
0: of guys have that problem hey i don't even know what i meant by that i just like (laughs) It was too laden with innuendo not to do anything um, with it. The you know?
1: scientists don't know um, if it's because he has psychic powers, if he can predict the future, is he somehow like causing them, or is some sort of like you know double agent or something, or has he been Pavlov- Pavlovian?y Has he been received some sort of Pavlovian conditioning to? have an erection in response to rocket fire so
0: i didn't all right i I was kind of wondering if you were going for a manchurian candidate thing but no pavlovian
1: is correct correct so um there's a reference to a thing which is a real thing called the little albert experiment which was when john watson uh trained a baby to be afraid of furry things by like playing loud noises whenever it was near furry things, like classical conditioning kind of stuff. Um, and it was the little Albert experiment. Like this is a thing that we know can be done to like dogs, where you can like train them when food is and stuff. Right. Yeah, um, that's
0: what the Pavlov's original that whole experiment is about.
1: Um, and little Albert was like the first uh, instance of this happening to a, a human. So the characters suppose. Um, and some of the sex stuff in this book gets a little graphic, so just buckle up, I suppose. Nice. Um, That maybe as a baby, uh, someone conditioned Slothrop to have some sort of sexual response to, like, loud noises. What kind of babies are out here having sexual responses? Exactly. It doesn't quite make sense, but I guess it could happen. I don't.
0: It feels of some kind, it feels of an era where like Freud's ideas hadn't all been totally discounted
1: Mm. yet. That's fair. That's an interesting All
0: all anybody is thinking about literally all the time is ding dongs.
1: (laughs) Well, that's this book. So um, they're not sure if that's the case, but it could be the case, and that maybe he hears the far off explosion of the V2 rocket uh, as it launches. And then he like, is like, well, gotta go have some sex. And then it lands there later. Uh, that's their hypothesis. So they need to track him and understand him better. Um, but of course, Pynchon is really into how sexual all this is. So like right after we get through the passage where they're describing this Pavlovian stuff, um, he is just writing about stuff that's happening he says above them now a throb of, now above them now throb a flight of b17s bound somewhere uncommon today well out of the usual quarters of flight uh, behind these fortresses the undersides of the cold clouds are blue and their smooth billows are veined in blue elsewhere touched with grayed out pink or purple
0: like this is uh pretty, pretty explicit huh
1: yeah it's a pretty explicit like veins and everything explicitly corny book um, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, other characters we meet in this opening section um, include Katie Bourge- uh <laughs> who is <laughs> I'm sure that's I'm sure you nailed it. Uh, or excuse me, Katja. Sorry, Kat- uh, my notes autocorrected. Katja, uh, who's a Dutch yeah, double agent. Notes, yeah, your notes messed you up. Um, and she was undercover. She's now in London. She was undercover with the German army at their rocket launch facility. And this is where we meet this guy named Blasero, uh, who is also Lieutenant Weissman from another pension book. Sure. Juicero. Yep. And Katja is shacked up with Blissero and a guy named Gottfried. And Blasero's in charge of them and makes them engage in a bunch of like Hansel and Gretel based like BDSM play and he dresses as a witch, and like puts his head in the oven a bunch, and everyone's sorta into it. I think Koch is there to like get info on the rockets um, this definitely all seems fine so far. This is all normal and like fine for this war like this this and again, like not to the book is pretty kink shamey in that regard because a lot of this stuff is presented as like way outside the bounds of of uh average behavior uh-huh and it is doing so to be like look at this moral morass that the war has left people in like people are just out here it's a hieronymus Bosch painting like people are just going nuts with their proclivities and
0: this is this is explained as something that happened because of the war and not just because of how
1: people are uh, it's both I, oh that's an interesting counterpoint because it's it seems like both but the rate at which because the rate at which we encounter it in the wasteland of post-war Germany is like over the moon um, uh-huh. there's like boats of orgy people up and down the rivers <laughs> <Or> uh, <laughs> it's, but but in Blacero's case you're right to point out that that actually seems more along the lines of Pynchon saying like this guy is uh both evil in the context of the war and uh like non-conforming to our to our expectations of how people behave sure um so uh We are also, like, introduced to Blasero's time in Southwest Africa, uh, where he met uh, a boy named Enzian and had a relationship with him. And that actually introduces this whole part of the book that I am glad that I, like, have now learned about a thing that I didn't know about, which is the Herero genocide uh, in 1904, which was, like, German colonialism. There was an uprising by uh, the native population of the region and it did not go great. And there were concentration camps, and there was medical experimentation, and the stuff you would expect to find in the rest of the Holocaust. Um, And the book, Pynchon imagines this group of people called the Schwartz Commando, which is the Black Command, um, Uh who are folks from the Herero uh, tribe or, or community that then end up... Working for Germany um, and becoming rocket technicians, and they are on the game board of people trying to chase down this rocket in the latter part of the book. Um, that's not real, but that it is building on an actual historical event of what Germany was up to even before World War One. Okay. Um, so we get Blacero and then we also get a little the we get a little bit of Lobel romance with <laughs> Why with are you talking like that with Roger Mexico and Jessica Swan Lake, I think is her name that's uh also sounds like a fake hotel name yes, and um Jessica when she's first introduced, it's a good reminder of um Pynchon just like deciding not to write women at all um she's introduced uh, at a seance that some people are having. Uh, mm-hmm. Jessica's been standing near the seance table with a handful of darts idly plucked from the board on the wall. Yada, yada. It seems the right moment now for Jessica to throw a dart, one dart, hair swinging, breasts bobbing marvelously beneath each wool heavy wool lapel. So, Is that how breasts work? I don't quite know. Um, and Is most... Bobbling? <laughs> most of the like six women that are introduced in this book of any consequence... Uh, usually get a dang she's sexy like entrance um and sometimes it has a like it feels like he's leaning into that uh like character voice even though it's all like an omniscient narrator Mm -hmm. um so like here's one where slothrop is running around uh and he finds this woman darlene um one day, just as he's entering a narrow street, all ancient brick walls and lined with costermongers, he hears his name called, and hubba hubba, what's this then? Here she comes, <laughs> all right. Blonde hair, flying in telltales, white wedgies clattering on cobblestones, an adorable tomato in a nurse uniform, and her name's, ah, well, oh, Darlene. Golly, it's Darlene. Gee Golly. G. Golly. Most of the women in this book exist to have sex with dudes. And very little else. So, if that's a thing that's that might cool. bug you about a book, yeah. like just be on the lookout for it, because um, it is a book that has a lot of sex in it and a lot of uh, e- explicit imagery, and most of it is uh, very male um, and gross. <laughs> that's too bad. It is too bad, and and that's a thing that I think isn't we find with a lot of folks from this part of the canon. Um, And I think I was reminded a lot of when I read Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth. And just there's this mid 20th century uh, exploration in American fiction written by men that is like, what is this outlandish sex stuff that I can put in here? Because thematically I can make a case that sex is related to yada, yada, yada. So, I'm going to put a bunch of gross stuff in here so that I can explore it. I'm not necessarily endorsing it. Um, but, but I might be. But I might be. Or it's how I view the world, and I haven't really thought about that because it's 1960-something. Um, and again, it's just... That is one of the things that I think does not stand up about a book that people refer to as one of the greatest works of the 20th century.
0: Sure. And I think we maybe... The, the book that comes to mind is... Um... Uh, Peyton Place is that? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, where, where, where yeah. at the time it was, it was you know the book that scandalized America or whatever, and it's it's it was all titillating and but but because of shifting standards that you know none of the stuff in it has the same punch or reads the same way, which sort of <laughs> affects our ability to experience the book as it would have been experienced then
1: yes i do think some of the making a lot of faces (laughs) i do think some of the stuff in this book still has a punch to it but we will get to that i do i want to close out on jessica and roger mexico um the closest thing to a romance in this book i think is they are fairly minor characters we've we only see them for the most part in this first section with a little bit of loop around at the end um but Jessica is in a marriage with another guy, um, but she hits it off with Roger and they end up seeing each other a bunch while the while the war has basically moved them together based on assignments. Okay. And Roger is very aware that without the war, he would not be with her. Um, mm-hmm. And when the war ends, their life together will end. Um, and there's only so much he can do about that. And he's also this very data-minded, statistics-heavy person who still feels a very spiritual connection to Jessica that he can't explain. Uh, and it goes against what what he thinks the, the way the world works. So I want to give a shout-out to that just because uh, the rest of the book does not have a lot of um, warm emotion in it. And... Even even an unrealized or kind of uh, relationship that doesn't have a future is closer to that than than the rest of the book. If that's a thing that you like to hang your hat on when you're sure, reading some and you're fiction. and you're just
0: you're hoping for more of that. Yeah, and I, less less kind of. I don't know. I don't even know if absurdus is a word you would use to describe the rest of the some book, of it. But, yeah, you know. I, yeah.
1: I was looking for that, and and I think. Um,
0: I think strong characters can or at least characters that you want to root for can ground you in that. Like if you're talking about infinite jest, I think yeah, the Howl sure, Mario relationship yes. is yes. the closest thing that book has to a heart. And I, I yeah, it definitely helped me to be able to to relate to them for moments in between all the other bizarre stuff that was happening. Well,
1: and when I was when I was reading up on what people have really responded to in this book the kind of free-flowing groundless nature of it at times is actually one of its landmark contributions if you if like sure, to yeah. what literature can do um, and it certainly has forerunners in Joyce and Beckett and stuff like that um, but it is certainly one of the books to dive this deep into the, to what war can do to a culture and to a society at a person by person basis by just like obliterating them mm-hmm. um so the the whole first section of the book is kind of setting up all these characters and then as i said the the latter part of the plot is mostly slothrop uh trying to track down this rocket and the various forces that are collapsing in on a uh a, a germany that has lost um and individual people within those forces who are also hunting for this rocket. Okay. So the big ideas that I want to hit um I'll just start with the the sex and the BDSM stuff. Sounds um,
0: like a great place to start. That's I kind want, of one brand for us. I'm just
1: going to read a a direct quote about the uh polymer plastic, the fictional plastic in this novel. Imapole XG is the first plastic that is actually erectile. Like, Pynchon knows what Man, he's doing.
0: You gotta be that obvious about it.
1: <laughs> I guess when you have like when your book is two years long, like you might as well just go for it, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't want people to forget what the point is. Right, um, which is the
0: ding-dongs. The ding dongs. Like we said. Yeah.
1: Um, this is I found gravity's this gravity's ding
0: dong. <laughs> I found
1: this good quote from uh, an article on the millions what pension scholars do write about a lot is sex and its relationship to death in his books this is natural especially when we're talking about a war novel like gravity's rainbow sex and death are inherent in our conceptions of war everything about modern warfare is riddled with sexual imagery we're constantly shoving thrusting or otherwise forcefully inserting objects into places where they're not wanted then trigger sure it, then triggering them to explode Oof. um yeah, and and Pynchon leans into that to the point of absurdity. Um, there, like I said, Blissero is is or Blissero. Everyone say his name, Weissman. Is um, Blissero
0: sounds like a guy who like hides in a bush and tells you <laughs> things to say to a girl to to get or to start a relationship with her.
1: We should read that book for the show <laughs> um uh he is he is certainly like turned on by the possibility of death he is cheating death as he's playing his Hansel and Gretel stuff um he is ultimately the one who was responsible for launching the first version of this mysterious rocket um that had a sexual payload in it. I'll yeah, just say you just got it <laughs> um. I'll you know, launch just rockets say, with sexual
0: payloads. Like, are you good over there? That's
1: yeah, a thing that happens in the book. Um, there is an old brigadier named Brigadier Pudding who <laughs> gets into some uh, dirty play. I'll leave it at that. Brigadier Pudding also
0: sounds like the name of a pudding company that would release like anti Nazi ads and tell you to conserve rubber for the, yes. the
1: boys overseas. Um, that section of the book is the is one of the ones that I was like, oh, so that's why they didn't give him the Pulitzer. Like, <laughs> it's it's if they
0: even if the people reading it even got to that <laughs> section, which I don't know how far <laughs> into the book it is, but
1: it is it is pretty explicit and dirty stuff. I will say. Um, Not for mixed company. So a lot of the sex stuff feels very extra, as I've said. Mm -hmm. Um, There are women of dubious age who men have sex with uh, Mm -hmm. in a way that the book does not really ever hold them accountable for. Um, So that's a thing that happens. Sure. Um, At one point, when Slothrop is super high... He gets a nose erection?
0: Explain more about the mechanics of this to me. It
1: up uh, it's it has to do with boogers and it gets really <laughs> okay. big and then like a woman eats it? He's really high on hashish or hash. Listen, Did to, I t- to, to whom among
0: us <laughs> has this not happened?
1: And all of this is in there, I think, as I said, um, because Pynchon is, is envisioning this world of like like a Sodom and Gomorrah situation uh-huh. where the world has been so damaged by what happened in World War Two that people are just a mess. And it's it's like a sexual nihilism, I would I think. I guess I You don't I necessarily buy it because it, it seems like it's also isn't war as is hell like the big theme. So wouldn't people already be this terrible? Is that what you're saying?
0: No, like I, I just, I, I, I get it, but mm. why I, but it's over the topness is sort of.
1: Yeah. I don't find to me if it's bit. supposed to be funny. I didn't necessarily find it funny. Um, okay. We talked about the big, like new technology and fear of new technology, uh, thing before the what's related to that is some of this cause and effect stuff that I've referenced. Like some of that is the classical conditioning in the Pavlov-related characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is just the literal image of the parabola and the fact that it is like it starts in one place and it goes to the other, and it's just a continuous effect that you can measure. Like um, the idea that everything that we do has consequences and that it is all part of an unbroken chain of events. Um, in some ways, you see that reflected in, like, okay, so Germany becomes this power vacuum, and you have um, the character from Africa, the Schwarzkommando Commando leader, who has, like, filled part of the power vacuum. You have the Brits who are trying to track down Slothrop. You have this crazy American major who's also trying to track him down. You have a Russian guy uh, to cheat. Um, what's his name?
0: Not sure. How did the how do like how concerned is the book with like geopolitics and the shifting of power between like the, the allied countries in, in, in the aftermath? Like is that a thing that comes up at all, or is it more focused on Slothrop in his uh his his donger? It
1: it is focused on that through the prism of specific characters. So I was actually you get a lot you get a decent roster of characters who are were in the German army, um, many of them working on the rocket and whatnot, um, but it does explore conflict between them. You mm-hmm. get a representation of Russia uh, in this guy who's trying to hunt down both Slothrop and Enzian, who's the leader of the Herrero group. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you, there's a scene where Slothrop has been tasked with digging up some stolen hashish where he is at the Potsdam Accord, I think where they're divvying up Berlin and mm-hmm. like Germany. So you do he does like see Truman and is like, wait, that's not my president. I thought my president was FDR. And he's oh, like, boy. Nope, your president died. Uh so most of the characters that we are actually deal like spending time with are a rung below actually knowing what's going on. Okay. Um and I think Pinchon is is deliberately bringing us down there um, to show us like how much of that geopolitical like chicanery does not affect them. Okay. You know, they, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff going on that is affecting them, but they don't get to participate in that at all. Okay. Um, yeah. The the whole cause and effect thing comes up a lot. Um, and I just want to, share this one quote about it before I move on that Slothrop, just as he's about to go, I think on this hashish mission, I think he's given a new identity. (laughs) What a a, a sense. (laughs) He's given a new identity by a stranger um, who's helping him. And he asks, like, why are you doing this? And she says, who knows? We have to play the patterns. There must be a pattern you're in right now. Um, And this idea that they are participating in this longer, chain of cause and effect that they don't quite know where it's going to go, but they have to see where it might lead. Um, that I think is like, that's a, it's a big thing that the, that the novel is interested in. Like why is the rock? Why are the rockets the way that they are? Why do they fall where they are? What caused them to do those things? Sure. Um, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that also plays into the big theme of the book of paranoia. So as I said before, that is like the, animating fear of the entire book is that uh, someone knows what's going on and they're doing it to ruin your life.
0: Yeah, I think that's a and that's a thing in a yes. lot of different stories is paranoia and, and distrust. Yeah,
1: um, And so two things I want to share about that. One is Sothrop in the second part of the book he's sent to this casino in liberated France where mostly it's a bunch of people having sex and yes. Uh that's he is seduced by Katcha who's working for the British government to educate him about the rocket so that he will like go off and try to learn more about it. While he's there, he shares with the reader five rules of being paranoid. I'm gonna share those <laughs> with you right now. <laughs> okay. Number one, you may never get to touch the master, but you can tickle his creatures.
0: Okay,
1: so that is living as a paranoid. you may not actually get to like meet who is in charge of what's going on, but you can affect like low level change on on whoever that person's like servants are right? sure. Okay. And the innocence of the creatures, this is rule number two, the innocence of the creatures is an inverse proportion to the immorality of the master. So possibly within the conspiracy, People might just be totally normal and like cool and nice. So to you. Are, we, are we
0: talking about like the the more evil the the ringleader, the like the more innocent the people who are following following him, or the other way around?
1: I believe that is what is he is saying. Yes. Okay. Um, if they can get you to ask the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about answers. Think about that. I have no response. Like I. <laughs> I guess
0: that seems pretty self-evident as just like if you can trick somebody, then aha, they're tricked.
1: Well, it's that one to me is about like distraction and misinformation and saying yeah, just no. keep
0: just keep your eye on the ball. You know? Yes,
1: it's that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you hide, they seek. That's rule number four. Sure, sure. Uh, and rule number five, paranoids are not paranoids because they're paranoid but because they keep putting themselves deliberately into paranoid situations. Which that, I think, is very true.
0: (laughs) That gets, like, I think some paranoia gets um, self-fulfilling, and I think that's kind of where you're getting into that whole situation.
1: Yeah, and as the conflict of the war starts to break down, more and more characters exhibit a, a more overt form of paranoia where they're like something else Will be dictating the way that things go down. Okay. Someone else is in charge of like the next conflict or or whatever. Um, and the most like moving or at least very engaging kind of short story that deals with this um, is this guy Puckler, who is referenced a couple times throughout the book, and then gets like his own short story midway through the book. Um, he's a guy working on the rocket and he the german government he's working for them and he's like recovering from a failed marriage and he's never he hasn't seen his daughter in years and all of a sudden there's a young girl that just shows up in his office and claims to be his daughter and he's so excited to see her and they start giving him like two week furloughs with her to this like kid kids like playland, think like dutch wonderland or something yeah. um but he doesn't know if it's her he doesn't know if they're if they think he's just a pedophile he doesn't know uh how to prove any part of this arrangement uh she tells him that she is coming from some sort of camp which he doesn't know yet to be like the horrible concentration camps that they are but he is committed to working on this Rocket and this is like one of those you're not a prisoner but we need you to do this thing and we're going to keep stringing you along with a thing that may or may not be real mm-hmm. Um and that it's just a really bizarre part of the book because you don't know a if he's a good guy or a bad guy like he, he does some heinous stuff but um you don't know he doesn't know what to believe so you don't know what to believe. And then you're like, "Well, is this book making me paranoid? Of what? I'm not sure. Um, I need to
0: take another toke on this joint.
1: Yes, a little bit, a little bit. Um, but like, I need to toke up on this marijuana cigarette again. And then that story ends up with him actually seeing one of the camps uh, directly, and it's one of the few looks we get at at that at all. Okay, um, uh, that part of World War II." um
0: so all right so we are we are yeah, like at, on the home a, at a normal show's time so like what what else i don't know like like is, is this the point at which you start talking big picture about how this book made you feel or like or do you want to talk at all about the experience of reading it on deadline for a show because i know that colors a lot of how i feel about some things that i've ever read
1: yeah love, yeah yeah
0: like what kinda of, what kind of avenues you wanna go down?
1: I wanna let you know that apparently Pynchon loves goofy songs. There's lots sure. of songs in this book.
0: That all tracks.
1: Um and so I, I turned a corner on them and I was like, this seems all right. This doesn't seem like it's bothering me anymore. And then it went right <laughs> and then it went right into the scene where pudding got into some some dirty play. And I was like, Oh, I nice. don't know how I feel about this anymore. I that uh, happened
0: in Infinite Just a couple times is I would hit a stretch where like I felt like <laughs> things were finally making sense and then I'd turn the page <laughs> and I'd just be gone again.
1: Uh, I will say there's like sometimes stuff like the Goofy songs actually makes the tone work for me um, In in as much as other parts of the book. I was like, I don't buy this level of absurdity. So there's a section where Slothrop is being chased by a bunch of American soldiers and he ends up in a hot air balloon uh, armed with pies being chased by this major um, and they're in the clouds and the whole time that they've been chasing him they've been singing dirty limericks because they're all a bunch of drunk Americans singing dirty limericks Mm -hmm. and so it becomes almost like a horror movie where when they think they've lost them you just hear there once was a fellow named Schroeder who buggered the vein servo motor he soon grew a prong on the end of his schlong and hired himself a promoter. And that's how you know that they're coming through the clouds to get Slothra. And like, that's one of the cleanest ones I can read on air. I'm just going to tell you that right now.
0: That's neat. Neato.
1: That to me, at least, like, it's a consistent device. It's kind of fun and playful. Uh, the cartoonish thing of him like throwing pies at people, like, worked for the most part. Um, But. I got lost in this book a lot. I really How had do you a mean? like. What do you mean? I really had a hard time tracking what people were doing to one another and why. And like in a in a sexual sense. Oddly, no. I always <laughs> knew that. <laughs> oddly enough, um, I think like the rocket thing is is sort of a red herring of a plot because while it does motivate a couple you know characters to move through the book there's so much stuff that they just do
0: yeah it feels like it feels kind of secondary like it feels like it exists because your book has to have some kind of a plot in it but well and 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 it does we'd spent as much time as we possibly could kind of ignoring it
1: well and and also it it is in the book because of its power as an image, because of its relationship to the other stuff that Pynchon wants to write about, both like from a technology standpoint and from a sex standpoint. Uh-huh. Um, but as a the the book is really uninterested in a for a book about cause and effect, it's oddly uninterested in this happens, which causes this to happen, which causes this to happen. Um, and some of that's just getting lost in the density of the language um, and how hard it can be to follow at times. Um, it's really... That's like... If you can think of a big block of text, like, think Faulkner, but with more commas. Like... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, just any kind of punctuation, really. Yeah,
1: and, and also the narrator... Um, a thing I might have liked more, and maybe might like more if I had time to really dig in, is, like, the narrator is usually not any of the characters but does slip into different voices to fit their needs pretty well like i read that like hubba hubba section which is like that's kind of a close third person joke voice and then at times it can get very uh like scientific when it needs to there's a whole section at the end where we're like reading tarot cards for a former nazi and it's just giving me a, a real like blow by blow of this dude's tarot cards um and it's a it's an agile narrator but the the style of prose is just so dense and hard to get through um and maybe that's a thing that i would not have like felt was so much my experience if i was not reading it for the show like that sure. to, to your earlier question like that's a thing that is harder for us to bring on to the show in general and then it when you're like oh i've really got to make sure i'm not missing stuff but also this is a wall of lots of lists lots of yeah. lots of imagery through lists which has a like when it's clicking, it gives your brain that kind of like rhythmic feeling that can take you somewhere through more than just a picture, right? Like that's why people like this style of prose when it's working. But when you're trying to get a sense of it, especially for the purposes of then like reporting back on what happened, (laughs) um, it can be tougher. And a, a thing that I struggle with, with this book, and I think it's like a, it's not a given in this style of writing, but it's certainly a hallmark of late of mid to late twentieth century fiction, is like there's a lot of hallucinations and people on drugs and yeah. maybe some ghosts or not. Like I feel
0: like that's a that's a hallmark of, of like prestige television in this like post Sopranos <laughs> world is like every once in a while you have like an extended dream sequence or a drug fueled something or other and it's used as an opportunity I guess to break the rules of the show and maybe show us elements of these characters that we haven't seen otherwise but also it gets tedious and tiring to be like so unmoored for so long and also like, if you're ever not sure what the point of something is supposed to be, there's an episode of Mad Men in season six where they all take drugs in the office. Oh, US. yeah, I've heard of this, And yes. the entire episode is just, like, them doing drug stuff. And I just, I, I don't, I don't like it because I'm not sure what it's doing. Sure. And I I guess... Like the true fans, and including like true fans of like complicated books like this and like Infinite Jest, which is why I'm always afraid of like getting it wrong when we read these big books yeah, that sure. have like established reputations and big fan bases. I'm always worried about being perceived as like not like, like none of our opinions about this thing are worth listening to because we just so obviously like don't get it and don't understand it. And it's like going over our heads. Like, you, I don't know.
1: I think, I think there's definitely stuff in this book that went over my head. And I think there might be stuff that I would like more if I had time to go research it. Cause Pynchon is like, he's referencing so much stuff and it's hard to tell. This is the, my own ignorance. Sometimes it's hard to tell when he's making something up and when he's referencing something real. Um, similarly, it is hard to tell if an event is actually occurring or if someone's hallucinating. Also, sometimes <laughs> it's hard to tell if a character died or not. That happens a couple times. And I know that's the point. Doesn't make it any more of a question that is frustrating. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, or any less of a question, rather. So the I I just want to close on one other thing that I did like and often really like about this style of fiction is that it does build in room for the random essay like the ra- here's a random section of the book that uh you're gonna remember and is vaguely justified uh but just kind of <laughs> gets dropped in there so my example comparing again to infinite jest is like i think a lot about the section where he talks about like video phones and the arc of and all like the weird Skype technology, yeah, that and Snapchat where, where stuff everyone
0: people changed their faces.
1: People changed their faces, and they got masks. And then everybody just stopped using video phones <laughs> because they couldn't keep up with uh-huh. the tech. So in this one, there's just a whole essay from the point of view of Byron the light bulb, who is an actual light bulb, who uh, had a longer like burning life than any other light bulb and tried to communicate to the other light bulbs about himself and other technology about, uh, the conspiracy of planned obsolescence. And it's this like, oddly iPhones. Am I right? I know. Right. And this is like based on a real thing that did happen where there was like, uh, I'm trying to find the article. If I have it pulled up, I don't know that I do anymore. Um, but was actually about this like cartel of light bulb manufacturers in the 30s who someone had made a really good light bulb and they were like, nah, I think we want to make it burn out faster. Yeah, sure. Um and that like little technology riff is a thing that kind of stands out. It's really clear, you get what's going on, even if it's very absurd. Um that to me is up there with both the like any of the writing on the Herrero history and some of the stuff on, as I said, Pokler's backstory stands out as like working, even though it's mostly ancillary to Slothrop's bizarre sex adventures. Um, <laughs> he dresses up in a lot of costumes, Andrew. One time he's just dressed up as a pig man for like two hundred pages.
0: Listen just don't don't disparage it. What's I mean, problem? why are you being such a
1: prude? I'm not being a prude. He's just Judge, Judge Prudy over here. Just, welcome to courts in session. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Gravity's Rainbow. That's everything kind that of. you could say about Gravity's Rainbow. It's I think. every
0: single thing you could say or think about Gravity's Rainbow. I think we did a great job just nailing absolutely everything about it.
1: Definitely. The stuff about technology is the stuff that's probably why the book has endured, I think.
0: Yeah, there was a there was something I read about it that referred to it as the Old Testament of Cyberpunk. Oh, sure, yeah. Where cy- Cyberpunk is uh, Blade Runner and that sort of. Um, yeah, I could see that. What if what if or, or even like 1984, maybe where like what if, Corporations
1: what, what if
0: and- what if technology and capitalism, but bleak and taken to logical extremes.
1: It's a thing I think about, um, like pre. World Wars I think there was a stronger sense of like scientific discovery being led by various countries academic communities and then post World War 2 it's mostly like the companies that would stand to benefit
0: Yeah I gu- I guess 1984 is about government overreach where cyberpunk is more frequently about the overreach of of private companies kind of willfully like the the common element being that that people buy into it willfully and don't even fully realize what's going on and and then you just got this bleak future that you get to live in now
1: (laughs) yep welcome to it that's where we are so if i missed your favorite part of uh gravity's rainbow i would love to hear about it actually because i'm probably going to be thinking about this book for way longer than it took to read it, which says something. Um, hit us up at OverduePod at com, or hit us online, Facebook.com slash OverduePod or Twitter.com slash OverduePod.
0: Email is online, just kind of...
1: Oh, yeah. ...throwing
0: that out there for Wait. you. You spent a lot of time thinking about technology, so I, I can... I meant it capital
1: unless. O online, which is what you say when you're addicted. Oh,
0: you mean like when you're mad online. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, Some folks who were not mad at us this week But were very nice include Nikki, Wendy, Brendan, Grace, Colin, Yanira, Maggie Mitch, Rebecca, Ellen, Katie, and many more Thanks for reaching out Andrew, if folks want to know more about our great show Where should they go?
0: They should go to OverduePodcast.com Which is our internet website Up there we have links to the books that we have read And are going to read If you want to read along with us uh, Click them, buy them, read them We get a little cut of that And you get to read a good book So win, 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 win uh, we also have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and our RSS feed. You can use any of those services to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out on Mondays or in the case of bonus episodes, just whenever we happen to release them. We have um, coming up in a couple of weeks before the end of the month, we'll have our next batch of Stop Homer Time episodes to release. That's a show within a show where we read Emily Wilson's translation of The Odyssey, um, two books at a time. It's going really well so far. Um, we also have a new listener page you can use to point people to when you're trying to tell them about the show. And we have our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash overdue Give us some money and we'll do some stuff for you. Um, that's the reason why Craig read Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah. Not the only reason, but like the main one. <laughs> but
1: but thanks, guys, for, for forcing us to get to some pinching because I'm glad that we finally add him to our collection like a Pokemon.
0: Yeah, we caught him. What are we talking about next week, I don't know what he evolves into. I'm kind of scared to find out, honestly. Um, Next week, we are returning to the Meyerverse. That's right. We're reading Twilight New Moon by Stephanie Meyer. And we're just going to find out what's up with Team Jacob. I know you haven't started yet. I'm halfway through. I'll just give you all a sneak peek. I kind of understand Team Jacob now.
1: Oh, I can't wait.
0: That was a big thing. We didn't get it. But now I think I get it.
1: Okay. Well, I look forward to figuring out why you love Wolf Boys so much.
0: I certainly do. And until we see you next week, everybody, try to be happy.